सदाहम हृदयारविंदे पादारविंदम वरदस्य वंदे मंदोपीयस्य स्मरणे न सद्यो गीर्वाण वंद्योपमताति सो द टॉक फॉर टुडे इज बियॉन्ड मोपला मैसेकर एनदर लुक एट द खिलाफत मूवमेंट सो एज वी हैव बीन इन रिसेंट टाइम्स सीन देर इज ए रिन्यूड इंटरेस्ट रिन्यूड अवेयरनेस ऑफ द मोपला सो कॉल्ड मोपला रिबेलियन एज इट इज known in the textbooks in the mainstream media etc because of its completion of 100 years that ghastly event had taken place in 1921 in malabar in kerala so with that event uh, there is a lot of awareness we are seeing a series of articles speeches talks happening over the last several months and what we would do today in the next few minutes is to look beyond just that one event because that mopla massacre was actually one part of a much larger dynamic called khilafat movement which also most of us have studied in our textbooks we are generally familiar with it but sadly the true uh, depth to momentum and impact of the khilafat is often uh, missed out in the narrative so as the famous adage goes we lose the woods in the trees often so when that's the kind of uh, historical narrative we read about khilafat movement so what we shall do uh, in next few minutes is focus on four or five things first i would propose to spend few minutes understanding the purva paksha or the islam's perspective of the khilafat their own point of view about khilafat because without totally grasping the islamic mind um, how it uh, receives uh, the concept of khilafat it will be hard for us to truly totally understand and totally assess the uh, so called khilafat movement second is we shall then bring that into the indian context we shall try to follow the khilafat not the khilafat movement as such but the khilafat itself in the indian uh, historical chronology and um, series of uh, uh, events dynamics that happened then we shall perhaps be ready to talk little bit more about what really happened um, around 1918 1919 of course we know that world war 1 happened and uh, turkey uh, ottoman empire ended up being on the losing side of the war and the winners uh, the european powers they uh, dismantled that very big uh, ottoman empire 
So, all of that we are aware of and therefore, its reaction in the Indian Muslims, but let us peel the onion so to say, let us uh, scratch the surface little bit more and understand what was the psychological energy, what was the motivation that was so specific to Indian uh, Muslims as compared to the Muslims elsewhere that they were so much um, enthusiastic about protecting the Khilafat of Ottomans. And then uh, as again the given narrative is that uh, Satyagraha, uh, the non-cooperation movement of uh, uh, Gandhiji co-opted Khilafat movement as core agenda of that uh, non-cooperation movement. It became one program as far as Congress is concerned. So, again I am not going to possibly go into too much uh, event by event detail of that because that is general knowledge uh, we all perhaps know enough about it. What I would like to do is look at the impact of some of the um, occurrences that happened. What did uh, really happen as a legacy and, and uh, uh, impact of Congress, uh, Gandhiji and Hindu Samaj largely co-opting the Khilafat uh, as their own program. So, what was the impact of that we shall perhaps talk about. And throughout these four or five bullets that I mentioned, we shall always keep connecting that to our contemporary times. We shall draw some lessons, hopefully we can um, get some new information. And then towards the end, if the time permits, um, we, we shall spend some Q&A or maybe we can, we can uh, casually talk uh, outside afterwards. So, with that, this word Khilafat many people say it should be Khalifat, it is actually Khilafat only, it comes from Khalifa which itself comes from Khulfa in Arabic it means behind or after Khulfa these three uh, syllables Khulfa it means behind. It practically means either a successor or a deputy. And there is quite a lot of uh, literature, scholarly literature uh, written uh, right from the 8th, 9th century by the Islamic scholars explaining the concept of Khilafat. So, let me begin with the brief outline of that thought process. In Islamic theology, Khilafat began with the first prophet. The all the prophets who came before Muhammad, they all were Khalifas. Nabi or the prophet, uh, the uh, messenger of God would also be Khalifa. We all generally know Khalifa means leader, Khalifa means perhaps also Sultan etcetera, but really in theology Khalifa is the spiritual leader. He may also be political leader, but Khalifa is the spiritual religious uh, leader who has a direct hotline with Allah. So, each prophet by default in itself de jure is uh, also a Khalifa. So, therefore, um, in Quran itself uh, we have the names of a few prophet especially 
referring with the adjective of uh, uh, Khalifa. And then of course, uh, the Muhammad himself um, definitely is Khalifa as well, although that title is not used generally for, for him. But uh, being a prophet, according to Islamic theology, he is also a Khalifa. Now, there is one thing which happens in Islamic theology most of us are aware of. It is called Khatme Nabuwat, which means finishing of the prophethood. So, Muhammad is the last uh, prophet in the series of prophets according to Islam. There is no prophet after Muhammad. So, does it mean that Khalifas are also over after Muhammad? There, uh, Islamic theology says that not really. So, all of these were perfect Khalifas. Um, but after that, after Muhammad's demise in 632, uh, there were uh, over the next uh, 30, 31, 32 or so years, series of four more rightly guided Khalifa or Rashidun as they are known. Yeah? So, starting with Abu Bakr, uh, then Omar, then Usman and then Hazrat Ali. These four are called rightly guided Khalifas. What does it mean? Rightly guided that although they were not prophets themselves and this is where the term, uh, the dual meaning of this word Khalifa that I mentioned from theological standpoint, one was successor, one was deputy. So, while the prophets including Muhammad himself are deputies of Allah. Hmm? So, they have direct hotline, they receive communication um, um, you know from Allah. They are deputies on earth of Allah. But after that, after the prophethood is over, the next Khalifas are not, not the deputies of Allah. They are successors. Successors of whom? Successors of prophet. So, they are like shadow of prophet. They follow the footsteps of prophet. So, these four, uh, again, there would be a uh, lot of, um, lot of uh, variations in uh, the point of view if you go between Sunni and Shia, etc., about the concept of uh, Khilafat. So, I will generalize a generalize, uh, little bit. And then, um, there is also a lot of discussion in the Islamic theology about who qualifies to be a Khalifa. So, there are generally two uh, schools of thoughts. One says, um, generally everybody agrees to that first point. One says that the Khalifa should be from always the Quraysh tribe of Arabia. The Khalifa can only be from Quraysh tribe. So, for a long time that was uh, the concept which was there in the theology. So, of course, all the four um, mentioned, they were from the Quraysh tribe. So, nobody from outside the Quraysh tribe can become Khalifa or the spiritual leader of all the Muslims. Then the second uh, more strict point of view um, is that not only should the Khalifa be from the Quraysh tribe, but he should also be from a smaller clan within the Quraysh tribe, Banu Hashim. Now, Shias take that stricter position 
they say that nobody from outside the direct bloodline and family of Muhammad himself can be uh, Khalifa. So, they, 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 they I will not go into that, I, I generally everybody is aware of that dispute. So, I will not go into the detail, but their position is that Khalifa should not only be a Qureshi, but also from Banu Hashim clan of the Qureshis. Ali being the husband of the only surviving child of Muhammad, uh, blood child of Muhammad, um, he kind of represents that line and, and so on and so forth. But then after that um, the first four uh, Khalifs, uh, Rashidun um, Khalifas as they are called, it was a brief period quite honestly. So from the time that Muhammad became the prophet and till the last year of Ali when he was assassinated, it is only 51 years. So four of these Khalifs plus Muhammad himself as a prophet, it was total of only 51 years. One thing which we should not miss is, again if you ask a general Hindu, even an ordinary average Muslim about what is the source of the um, guidance about life, about uh, uh, anything uh, from jurisdiction. Uh, prudence standpoint or uh, implement in, in interpretation of uh, uh, how the commands of Allah should be followed etc. They would say there are two sources, generally they would say there are two sources. One is the Quran and other is the Sunnat which is the uh, behavior and the teachings of uh, the Prophet Muhammad. But there is third, there is one more and that actually is the Khalifas, the Rashidun Khalifa, the behavior um, and the actions of these four so-called rightly guided Khalifas. Now let us move forward. Um, the role of Khalifa according to Islamic theology is to the several things. One is he is the commander in chief of all the Muslims. So all the Muslim community in a way is under the guardianship as well as under the command of this Khalifa. So on one hand he is the religious and spiritual leader, on the other he is also political and military leader. There is discussion, enough discussion in the Arabic Persian uh, literature, later Urdu literature about specific um, duties, roles and responsibilities of Khalifa and they range. Um, on one hand to be very close to uh, being a deputy of the prophet himself and to the lowest extreme still you can call him the chief executive of the Muslims worldwide, at least ideally. Practically however, uh, after the Rashidun, uh, these four um, Khalifas, uh, several series of um, stages happened. Um, and you had multiple Khalifas at the same time. Even in fact within the Rashidun, the first four uh, Khalifs also, there was not uh, unanimity even um, at the time of uh, Ali, uh, the most respected by Shias, even Sunnis alike. Uh, even at in, in the um, Caliphate of Ali, uh, unanimity of uh, all the Muslim community following him did not exist. So there was um, tussle. Uh, even in the time of Ali, but definitely that got so heightened 
that uh, in different uh, points in history you had multiple Khalifas at the same time. One sitting in Cairo in Egypt, other sitting in Baghdad, other uh, elsewhere, multiple claimants and it perhaps was hardly um, a reality ever um, for a very long time that one single Khalifa um, is looked up to by the entire Muslim society worldwide. But having said that, those are the first two responsibilities of Khalifa. Third is, he is protector of the shrines of the Islam. So, the harams they call harams, there are about six very important sites um, of um, Islam, all of them in the Middle East. The Khalifa has control, direct control and guardianship of those shrines and he therefore also has responsibility to protect the Hajj and you know the rituals of Islam from worldwide um, the Muslims are able to um, perform the Hajj and other rituals that is his responsibility. And then uh, lastly he is the one who kind of gives the directions when there is ambiguity about what to, has to be done. So, uh, the Muslim ulema often explain it like um, big circle and a small circle. They give the analogy that uh, let us say a horse uh, is tied uh, with a string uh, on a pole, uh, it is a let us say 200 meter long uh, rope through which the horse is tied. Now, horse is therefore given freedom to roam around in the circle of the radius of 200 meters. That circle, boundary of that circle is the limit that humans or Muslims are allowed by Allah to apply their own judgment. Outside of the, that circle, Allah has given all the commandments in the Quran and uh, in, through the Sunnah. Now, within this circle of <laughs> 200 meter radius, how does an individual judge what is right or what is wrong, what has to be done, what has not to be done? According to theology of Islam and their scholars point of view, Khalifa is the judgment. Khalifa tells you what has to be done, has not to be done etcetera. Jihad, very important uh, perhaps uh, all of us um, are aware of the theology of Jihad, I am not going to into that, but declaring Jihad. Um, is one of the responsibilities and privileges of Khalif as well. He is also Amirul Mumineen, he is the commander of all the Mumins. So, um, he has authority of declaring jihad. Hmm? There are again other things. Now, in Indian context, right from the initial contacts of the, or not contacts, invasions of the Islamic armies right from the uh, second caliph onwards, right from the time of um, the second caliph after Abu Bakr, uh, Umar. Umar sent um, expeditions, um, six or seven expeditions are recorded and they were all completely annihilated, totally unsuccessful from their point of view, different uh, uh, kings from uh, Hindu um, Hindu society, uh, from ranging from Chalukyas um, to um, uh, king in Sindh, etc., they totally, totally wiped out any remnants 
of those initial few half a dozen invasions by the caliphs. So, Muhammad bin Qasim's was the first successful raid or invasion in Sindh as we know. Uh, the life um, we all know the history that was short lived and there were uh, events which uh, happened after, uh, after soon after etc. But one thing to note here is that the initial Islamic powers be that in Sindh or later be that uh, even on the northwestern frontier uh, Ghaznavids in the 11th century uh, Mahmud of uh, uh, Ghazna, they all declared their allegiance to the single central global caliph, Abbasid caliph at that time hmm, in Baghdad. So, the sultans in Delhi later after uh, Muhammad Ghaznavi, after uh, Ghori etc., the sultans such as uh, Tughlaq or Iltatmish, they all declared allegiance not just ceremoniously, but properly through issuing the coins in, in here in Delhi, issuing the coins in name of Khalifa who is sitting in Baghdad. They would have the khutbah, khutbah is the um, ritual um, you know recitation um, once a week. Uh, in name of the king, the khutbah would be read in name of the khalifa. So, you can see that all the way up to Mughals that continued, the Indian Muslim kings, not only in Delhi, even Gujarat. So, for example, in later um, Muhammad Shah, the uh, Sultan in Gujarat, he had contact with the Ottoman, uh, the next uh, series of uh, khalifs uh, in Turkey. And they sent, an, um, sent uh, a naval fleet actually to support uh, him in Gujarat. This is uh, early 1500s. In south, we see the Bahmanis. Bahmanis had um, investiture, that is the uh, legalization of their uh, rule by announcements from Khalifa. So, Khalifa would legitimize their rule. So, Bahmanids subsequently later even in the 18th century, we see Tipu Sultan writing communicating very frequently with the Ottoman um, Khalifa. He would um, even uh, you know propose the military alliance. Of course, uh, the conflict of interests because he was here uh, fighting against the British, they were pitched against the French. So, that was not working out, but still uh, from the jihad standpoint, from the religious, political, ideological alignment, uh, Tipu Sultan would uh, send gifts, uh, see uh, you know, he sent uh, like 7 or 800 people, big fleet, he sent from um, Karnataka, he sent uh, such a huge fleet full of gold and money and so on to, um, uh, to Ottoman Sultan or Khalifa. Nizam of Hyderabad. So, Nizam of Hyderabad you may be in you know interested to know. Uh, after the breakup of this um, um, Ottoman Empire, he um, proposed marital alliance with the Khalifa's uh, family. So, the deposed Khalifa passed on the Khilafat 
um, and um, Kamal Pasha, as we know, Kamal Pasha was the um, the leader in Turkey who abolished the Khilafat. So uh, he he just for token for uh, just a figurehead, a cousin of the deposed uh, Khalifa was made the new Khalifa, and Kamal Pasha uh, allowed him to. Uh, go to Switzerland, live there in exile, but still be namesake uh, Khalifa. That exiled Khalifa um, was um, in contact with Nizam of Hyderabad because Nizam of Hyderabad was the richest Muslim in the world after that Khalifa was deposed. He was the most financially uh, powerful Muslim empire uh, even. And he in fact married his own uh, two sons with daughter um, and niece of um, that Khalifa and he had ambitions of um, kind of taking over Khilafat in a way. So, all that happened Nawab of Arkot, another uh, example in South India who would um, receive um, legality of his uh, rule from the Ottoman Empire. There are so many other examples which can be given, but uh, the bottom line is that the Indian Muslim kingdoms and I have kept Mughals out of this picture for now, I will come back to Mughals. By and large the Indian Muslim rulers right from the times of Delhi Sultanate, in fact before that um, on the northwest frontier the Ghaznavids onwards up to Tipu Sultan and last century less than 100 years back Nizam of uh, uh, Hyderabad, uh, they all received authority as a deputy to rule in name of the Khalifa, at least if not practically um, in the figurative terms. So, that is one thing to understand why it was, how it was we can discuss, but let us understand that all the Muslim rulers in India except Mughals except Mughals, I will come to Mughals, they all received authority from Khalifa. So, why not Mughals then? That is an interesting question. Temur Lane is a Mughal, of course, he did not rule directly in India, he invaded India, but Temur Lang in the 14th century was the one who conquered the Ottoman Empire. He invaded in 1402, he invaded, totally thrashed the then um, Khalifa. There is, um, it, it was uh, this um, event was so important that it is memorialized almost in the popular culture of the Middle East and uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, it is said that uh, his wife, who was a Serbian um, um, chief uh, wife, uh, once um, Temur Lang conquered uh, in the war of um, uh, Ankara, defeated the um, uh, Khalifa, arrested him. He put him, Bayezid first his name was that time, he put him in a cage, in a metal cage and in public view in his court, in his uh, armed uh, you know camp, army camp, he treated the wife of uh, that uh, Khalifa um, like a slave girl. So, she would serve the food and wine and what not semi-naked uh, to the war camp of uh, generals of uh, Temurlang. 
Now Mughals, the Akbar and Babar etc., they trace their lineage from Temulang. So in a way that, that animosity you can understand, Mughals and the Ottomans, they were almost at loggerheads and they continued. I mean, there were, I will come later to the contacts and how that all played out. But to begin with, Mughals considered themselves to be conqueror of the Khalifa uh, uh, Ottomans. They considered themselves to be Khalifa. As I said, um, at the same time, multiple claimants of uh, Khilafat were there in the world. And Mughals considered themselves to be the Khalifa. Akbar, in fact, quite openly declared that I am the Khalifa. And it is interesting that he was not even properly Muslim. And when he declared I am the Khalifa, he had almost renounced Islam. All his practices were against Islam. And after having done that, he declared that I am the Khalifa, I am the authority of Islam in the world, in the world, not just in India, in the world, Akbar's. Interestingly, um, the Sunni Orthodox uh, Maulanas and I think uh, even military generals, some of them, they complained to Akbar himself because Maulanas consider themselves the guardians of faith um, and if the Khalifa or the Sultan goes against the uh, ideology of Islam, the, the Maulanas have a authority uh, as well as duty to complain to the Sultan. So, uh, several Maulanas who complained to Akbar that what are you doing? You are, you are doing kufr and what will the Khalifa say if he hears about your uh, behavior? So, it is mentioned in a um, couple of contemporary records that Akbar would scold them. Akbar would say go and do the job of uh, take salary from Khalifa. There is an, another place a military person comes to Akbar and uh, says something like this, mentions Khalifa. He says, hey listen, if you want to quit my job and do the job for Khalifa, I will be happy to write a recommendation letter to you, etc. Now, Aurangzeb, fast forward to Aurangzeb, Aurangzeb properly perhaps was a Khalifa in full definition. Of course, he was not a Qureshi or he was not uh, from the uh, Banu Hashim. Um, clan, etc. But from the roles and responsibilities and the attitude and behavior that is described, most Maulanas of later would agree that he properly was Khalifa and Aurangzeb did in fact declare himself to be Khalifa. He uh, used the title um, Amirul Mumineen um, officially and um, he corresponded with Ottomans and in his correspondence, um, as is recorded, he never once refers to the Ottoman Sultan as Khalifa or um, any of the titles, any of the even remotely resembling uh, titles uh, which are applied to Khalifa. Not only that, you see his uh, politics, um, he, was, um, he was corresponding directly, not through the Ottoman Sultan, but directly with the Sharif of Makkah. So, Sharif of Makkah is a post, he is the uh, scholar or he is the um, ritual head, you can say, keeper of the shrine of uh, Makkah, Sharif of Makkah he is called. So, Sharif of Makkah was appointed of course by the Ottoman, it was controlled by Ottoman that whole Middle East. 
but aurangzeb would send money and huge sums of money to makkah to the sharif of makkah directly and almost every year sometimes more than once a year um, gifts uh, manpower money what not now similarly you can see that um, other muslim kings in the middle east he would have correspondence with he would even um, um, receive refugee or, or deposed kings uh, in delhi he'll keep them lavishly almost like he had an ambition of being the khalifa not just for india for the world so islamic state <laughs> that uh, islamic state which um, uh, al baghdadi was trying to create uh, in syria aurangzeb was trying to do that in india for the world not just for india i'm just trying to make that point once again for the world probably now of course we all know that he couldn't do that because his leg uh, was continuously held back by one person chhatrapati shivaji and you'd be surprised also to know that in some correspondences he had with the foreign other muslim rulers outside india shivaji figures so shah abbas of iran he is another somewhat powerful king uh, shia powerful king there is a letter which shah abbas wrote to aurangzeb and there he pulls leg of aurangzeb saying shivaji you are not able to defeat you are talking about being the amirul mu'minin in the world so um the correspondence of that thought you can see in the poetry of bhushana so bhushana as we all know um, um the famous brajbhasha poet and contemporary of chhatrapati shivaji in some of his poems you can find the reflection of it the consciousness that uh, we shall in fact uh, reach all the way up to uh, khorasan and um, even even uh, the borders of caspian etc the hindu um, samrajya would be all that far anyways not to digress so far the point of the discussion was that khilafat being an institution more than a person institution where it's a central islamic authority from spiritual religious standpoint but also political and military standpoint and that authority having such a deep shadow in india including at the time of aurangzeb the ambition being of an indian sultan to be an independent khalifa for the larger muslim population in the world okay now what happened so let's now fast forward what happened that abolition of the ottoman empire by the british became such a huge such a big um, reaction point for the indian muslims why such a big reaction for that uh, we should once again go back to after aurangzeb so soon after aurangzeb passed away the mughal empire very quickly very very swiftly disintegrated as we all know and at the same time the hindu samrajya of course um, initiated by the chhatrapati shivaji and then his successors his followers continued to expand continued to expand and by the end of the 18th century we see a situation that the map of bharat 
is almost totally saffron. There were pockets. Uh, so, for example, uh, you still had Nizamul Mulk um, or his successors in Hyderabad, which will become Hyderabad soon. You had um, pockets uh, in Bengal, in Awadh. You had a little bit um, in uh, Ruhel Khand, as it is known. But other than that, Rajputana was totally freed up. Of course, Mewar had not de facto ever surrendered to Aurangzeb um, or Mughals. Even the others within the Rajput um, um, uh, area had revolted against Aurangzeb in his own lifetime. So, Durgadas Rathod and then followed by him the Rathods. Others in Rajasthan, they had completely freed up uh, the entire uh, Rajputana. In Punjab, we already saw um, it was still a fledgling uh, kingdom uh, which will soon within the next couple of decades become a very powerful uh, frontier kingdom by Maharaja Ranjit Singh. In Nepal, you saw again a very powerful Gorkha kingdom, Hindu Samraj Gorkha kingdom established by Prithvi Narayan Shah. You saw the central India, Chhatrasal and his followers having freed up entire Chhattisgarh, Madhya Pradesh, uh, Lower Uttar Pradesh, those areas. So, uh, had it not been the British uh, or the European powers coming in, uh, the political, geopolitical situation perhaps would have been different, but uh, uh, we do not want to digress. Point was, politically, Islamic rule in India was almost over. But not only the political rule of Islam, even the social, religious, cultural, overall civilizational, uh, it was a rollback of Islam in a way. There were so many, so many um, Hindu revival movements happening on the ground, spiritual movements happening on the ground. There was significant amount of even gharvapsi as you can call it in today's term happening. So, this naturally had alarmed the ashrafs or the high caste Muslims. So, as, as you know, Islamic society also has caste and ashraf are uh, the higher class Muslims. So, these uh, Ashraf especially elites within the Islamic class were significantly alarmed and they had um, of course, the reaction in several directions, but from political front um, and the uh, religious front, the reaction uh, can be represented by Shah Waliullah of Delhi. So, Shah Waliullah uh, happened just soon after uh, Aurangzeb died. He lived a very long life. He was called Mujaddid or the reformer which comes once in a century in the world uh, in Islam. So, he was the Mujaddid of the century, Shah Waliullah. He lived in Arabia uh, for long time. He and in fact, he and Abdul Wahab who became the founder of uh, Wahhabism ideology later, they were classmates. Very few people pay attention to that fact. They were classmates. They were perhaps uh, living at the same time in Mecca or Medina perhaps, more likely Medina. Now, Shah Waliullah, he corresponded with the Muslim elites, Muslim kings, not only in India, 
but um, throughout the world he corresponded with the Ottoman uh, um, Khalifa inviting him to, uh, to repair the situation, advising him to be strict about Islam etcetera etcetera. He is the one who also wrote to the uh, Durrani in uh, Afghanistan to invade India to uh, roll back Marathas uh, back to Maharashtra etcetera. He, he would do all that. So, that is one reaction. And in fact, you can see how important the concept of Khilafat was in the minds of Ashraf at that time that a very important tract he wrote in Arabic is about Khilafat where he once again rediscovers what should be the uh, qualification for Khalifa, what should be the selection process of Khalifa, what should be the responsibilities and privileges of Khalifa. So, um, you can see that was one reaction that re-established Khilafat. He was trying to do that, re-establishing Khilafat because Aurangzeb could not establish Khilafat. He died, he could not uh, after that, he could his uh, successors could not even retain what he had created. There were other uh, reactions as well. Uh, there were uh, proper jihadis who came up uh, in the line of uh, Waliullah very soon. So, uh, for example, uh, Sayyid Ahmad uh, Barelvi, Sayyid Ahmad Shaheed as he is called, Shaheed because he got killed um, in Balakot, uh, same Balakot where uh, you know there was an air strike some time back. So, uh, Sayyid Ahmad Shaheed, he was a Pindari, um, again I will not digress, but Pindaris were freebooters who were mercenaries who can be hired uh, for doing any military like or raid like job and when they were not hired they would be like looters and dacoits. So, he was one of those working with um, a Pathan called um, Amir Khan and um, soon he discovered zeal of Islam and then he went to uh, Arabia. It is in Arabia, in Mecca and Medina that he discovered the ideology of uh, uh, Waliullah and Wahhab, perhaps Wahhab, not perhaps, very clearly he has Wahhab influence. He returns to India, has his own um, following um, in almost every city of uh, India and he openly calls for jihad against, uh, to begin with against uh, Sikh empire, uh, Ranjit Singh. So, he uh, takes uh, hundreds of his followers all the way from uh, what is today UP um, and goes to Afghanistan, establishes his base there uh, and uh, you can see this Taliban thing is not new. This, this whatever is Taliban is what um, did happen in the time of uh, uh, Sayyid Ahmad uh, Barelvi. So, uh, he goes there, establishes a base he himself was a warrior earlier uh, before he became a mullah. So, um, he wages a jihad against uh, Ranjit Singh, uh, but no big deal for Ranjit Singh. They were all slain in less than couple of hours in the battle of Balakot and he became Shaheed. So, that jihad was the secondary action. Third reaction was far more um, uh, cultural, civilizational, birth of Urdu for example identity, there were social changes, we do not need to be concerned uh, so much about those because not related to Khilafat so much. Now, all of these what I am trying to say is were in a way the predecessors of the Khilafat movement 
all of these dynamics, all of these currents which were happening are what first um, and they were all unsuccessful one after the other after the other each of these efforts were completely unsuccessful including uh, the uh, the invasion of durrani so while uh, durrani successfully uh, won the battle of uh, third battle of uh, panipat what what did he really gain not much really within less than 5 or 6 years uh, all the territory was once again captured by the marathas and sikhs and jats and rajputs so, um, not much uh, happened despite all the effort and then came the Europeans, 1857 itself the first war of independence. If you once again critically analyze and if you look at the behavior pattern, look at the source speeches, letters, texts, even the writings in the newspapers you would realize that as far as Muslim participants were concerned in 1857, for them the chief motivation was re-establishment of Islamic political power in India, re-establishing Khilafat in India which they had lost soon after the death of Aurangzeb. Now, after 1857, after having failed to establish to achieve their aims, many of the participants, direct armed participants of 1857 were actually the founders of organizations like Deoband Madarsa. Not many people realize that Deoband Madarsa was founded by direct participants of 1857 in Delhi. Having lost, they went to the town of Deoband, they established Deoband Madarsa and thinking behind that was not just religious, not just spiritual scholarly pursuit, no, not at all. It still um, was that we are losing, their thought process was that we are losing one after the other political battles, military battles initially against Sikhs and Hindus, now against British is because we are perhaps not good enough Muslims. Allah is not helping us. Allah has after all um, promised help to the moments in war against uh, uh, Kafirs. Why are we not receiving that help? Reason is we are not good enough Muslims. So, what should we do? One section of those participants of 1857 Muslim participants especially the Ashraf, the high caste um, um, participants, their answer was that we have to do internal reform, religious, social, cultural, spiritual reform. Now, this word reform, do not get confused, reform as far as Islam is concerned does not really mean changing the foundational core of their ideology at all. If anything, reform means going back to the roots, roots being the ideology as taught and practiced by the Prophet Muhammad and his immediate followers, Sahaba and more particularly the rightly guided Khalifa, the Rashidun 
the four Khalifas. So, this whole thought process Deobandi and then Tablighi Jamaat would be born several decades later, uh, there would be so many other Jamaats uh, of ulama uh, would be created um, and there are regional variations. There would be slightly different uh, reaction in uh, South India, there is this little bit uh, different reaction in um, Bengal, but all of this was Khilafat movement I call it. Okay. Moving forward, when the advent of the first world war happened, the Muslim energy, Indian Muslim energy especially um, folks that um, the type of folks that we are talking about, Maulana's leaders um, from the Ashraf community etcetera, they were still trying to at least sections of them were still trying to um, find ways of armed jihad still against the British and um, especially British, but definitely uh, Hindus as well. In fact, they were willing to collaborate with the non-Muslims, they did not um, oppose tactical alliance with the Hindus or Sikhs etcetera, they were okay with that and Islamic tradition totally allows that even um, the um, the first four Khalifs, they collaborated with Christians and um, uh, others in the initial uh, decades after Muhammad's death to uh, conquer other lands and they would soon of course, um, you know turn the behavior very soon after the alliance, but they did ally with non-Muslims um, in uh, jihad even. There are uh, quite well articulated um, point of views about this that Muslims are allowed to collaborate with non-Muslims um, in, in the war against others. So, here also these participants did that. Um, I, I do not know um, how many of you are familiar with this Reshmi Rumal conspiracy, Reshmi Rumal conspiracy, the silk uh, kerchief letters conspiracy. It is sad that we do not read about these events, but time will not permit me to get into detail perhaps some other day. The, there, is, there was a very interesting event <laughs> almost like um, um, a detective novel by Arthur Conan Doyle uh, or Agatha Christie almost like that, Reshmi Rumal conspiracy uh, with the actors being from uh, Deobandi background uh, who were hatching a global conspiracy of invasion of India in uh, we are talking about uh, around uh, 1917 or so. Which again failed, it did not work out. Then came the uh, First World War, Ottoman Empire was defeated uh, along with Germany, um, ended up being on the losing side. Um, European uh, victors, they uh, kind of broke the three legs that the Ottoman Empire had. So, for a long time, Ottomans were um, considered an empire with three legs Northern Africa, Eastern Europe and western Asia. So, almost like a fan with three blades, all the three legs were broken, they were restricted back to just the uh, core Turkish um, territories, what is today Turkey, Anatolia or Turkey. All other um, strategic depth areas that the Ottoman Empire had were distributed uh, among the European powers, Italy, France, uh, Britain etcetera. So, all the uh, 
um, all the very important colonies like Syria or Egypt or Libya, etc., were all distributed and divided amongst the, these European uh, colon, colonizers. Now that kind of was um, not a big deal for most Muslims outside India. Uh, so, the assessments if you read from people like Jadunath Sarkar etcetera, um, contemporary opinions, they do not think it was a big deal even for Indian Muslims. Psychologically, it should not have been a big deal for anybody. There is no emotional connection, but it became a big deal. Reason was that defeated people's mentality that Indian Muslims had, they were defeated first by six Hindus. Uh, done by the British, now uh, by the Europeans. So, they kind of uh, felt uh, that whole emotion, that anger and that burst out uh, in so many events that happened that we call collectively as Khilafat movement. Now, few things that we should underline before we move forward to the next uh, or the last part of the talk. First of all, if we can take one thing out of this whole analysis of the behavior of Muslims, it is that theirs is not a loyalty to a territory and do not feel offended with that, that is what it is. You may consider uh, India Punya Bhumi, you may consider India Pitra Bhumi, Matra Bhumi, yeah? even um, even um, somebody who leaves India, goes abroad, lives there, settles down for several generations, they still have an emotional, spiritual connection with, uh, with the Punya Bhumi Bharata. Do not apply the same standard on Muslims, let us be very clear about that. Muslims do not even feign that, they say our patriotism means uh, patriotism of a villager in a way you live in the city, you are a citizen of the city you, or, or, or of the village, you take care of the village, but that is more or less about it. Do not expect, uh, <laughs> I am trying to do puru paksha of what they feel. Okay? For them, the loyalty is to Islam, not to this land or that land. Loyalty is to Islam. For them, um, everything else is secondary, tertiary, primary it is Islam. So, um, this behavior is very clearly visible throughout the whole, uh, whole um, analysis of the behavior pattern of Muslims, most particularly in the Khilafat movement. And do not you see that the same behavior pattern has not gone away, even today the uh, Muslims of India or Muslims of anywhere would be very easily agitated by some event which took place in Paris or uh, somewhere else, then um, something which happened in the neighborhood or something which happened um, uh, in, in Kashmir, uh, where some terrorist uh, did some uh, atrocity on uh, non-Muslims, that does not agitate the Indian Muslims as much as their co-religionists uh, of a very far away land with whom they have absolutely no uh, other connection besides uh, the uh, same religion. That um, continues and will continue, there is nothing that can be changed. That is the first thing. 
second thing is that we have to very clearly also understand why are we Hindus not motivated uh, towards uh, looking beyond this immediate um, struggles that we have. Why do events that happen on Hindus let us say in Fiji, they are also um, not only your co-religionists, they are also uh, actually same ethnicity. Some event which happens in far away Trinidad and Tobago or Suriname does not agitate us that much perhaps as uh, it does the other side. So, perhaps we should uh, uh, think about it, perhaps we should learn something from them even. Yeah. So, that is the second thing. Now, anyway coming to the Khilafat, uh, I will not go into the details which so many other articles, speakers um, have already covered. All of us are aware of those um, happenings that um, the Ali brothers uh, Muhammad Ali and uh, uh, his brother, they kind of created um, a whirlwind of um, uh, movement out of this with support of Congress party, Mahatma Gandhi. But do not again mo most people focus only on uh, Mohandas Karamchandra Gandhi, he was not the only one, do not forget that. In fact, uh, if we once again uh, slow down and study it a little bit more, even before Gandhi said to say, um, even Lokman Tilak had made a small mistake, perhaps the last thing that he did in his life was um, a pact in Lucknow, where a lot of such similar concessions were given to the Islamist sentiment. Gandhi was not alone, Gandhi was the biggest uh, proponent of this idea, but he was not alone. Second thing, uh, also we should look at uh, the situation which was prevalent in the Hindu society at that time. So, the last decade of the 1800s and first decade of the 1900s, so these 20 years almost or 25 years time, I consider it to be the peak momentum of, a, of the Hindu revival. Hindu society was full of energy. You had on one hand Arya Samaj which was created soon um, uh, before the times that I mentioned. Arya Samaj had gained such traction in the North India. There was very good, very successful effort of Gharvapsi that was happening. So, for the first time Hindus learned the institutional um, way of bringing people back. There were uh, things done before also, but for the first time Hindus had an in institutional way of reaching out and bringing um, your people back. You had cultural um, revolution in the literature, in languages. Um, if you look at the time uh, you had for example, uh, just to mention in Hindi language Bharatendu Harish Chandra, he had given a call to remove all the Arabic, Farsi, Turkic influence in the language, bring in the Sanskrit again, things which were um, systematically corrupted in the language sphere Bharatendu Harish Chandra and his friends in, in, in the time uh, period that I mentioned, 
that movement hindi movement happened there were so many other movements which were happening and in the politics also you see uh, lala lajpat rai leaders like lala lajpat rai and even more i should mention bipin chandra pal they had for the first time created a solid hindu nationalism based national politics it is wrong to attribute mahatma gandhi uh, having created a mass movement not true at all you have to go uh, two or three decades before gandhi and you'll realize that mass movement already existed it um, it was almost there you had an elite movement you had hindu elite from bengal to maharashtra punjab to uh, south india all thinking uh, uh, about the revival the revival was in the hindu zeitgeist at that time okay then you see original thinkers like uh, rishi arbindo happening in that time you see swami vivekananda you see um, such uh, amazing writers like bankim chandra in bengali sarat chandra you see so much of uh, artistic uh, revolution happening new hindu expression of uh, art happening right at that moment so um, scholarship lot of great uh, writers philosophers thinkers speakers happened and then suddenly you would see that coming to um, i wouldn't say uh, i wouldn't say crashing end but it slowed down suddenly what happened <laughs> what happened the new leadership new hindu hriday samrat appeared who was that new hindu hriday samrat mohandas karamchandra gandhi so towards the end of the second decade of last century gandhi took over lajpat rai bipin chandra pal they almost retired bipin chandra pal took um, back seat and um, lajpat rai passed away before that uh, tilak passed away as well and you had this new thought process also coming in and gaining taking control of the national movement so chitranjan das is the other name that we should remember we don't talk enough about chitranjan das hmm? deshbandhu chitranjan das was actually the tactical hand behind gandhi's merging uh, khilafat with the non cooperation movement it was actually babu chitranjan das in calcutta who had independently even before gandhi created that thought process in calcutta in bengal uh, there was before communal award there was something called communal award but in bengal um, after the partition of bengal uh, was defeated in 1911 which was a great victory for hindus they defeated um, the communal partition okay it was a state partition but they defeated it it was a great mass movement don't it was a mass movement all the revolutionary activities that you see later in bengal were born out of that all the uh, all the um personalities that later became famous as the great revolutionaries they came out of that movement now babu chitranjan das uh, he was also a great congress leader famous congress leader at bengal level at least he created so called a pact with muslims saying that in districts of bengal where muslims are in majority there would be certain seats reserved for them 
So, for the first time even before British did that it was Chitranjan Das who had created this um, so called pact. So, very soon after that came this event of Khilafat and Chitranjan Das jumped on it and it was Gandhiji and Chitranjan Das working together. In fact, as I say more Chitranjan Das than Gandhiji that um, was the brain behind Khilafat movement becoming a program of Congress party. So, he began Chitranjan Das began correspondences with important leaders all over India such as Lajpat Rai. He wrote letters to Lajpat Rai why Congress should take up uh, Khilafat movement. Those letters are very instructive. The replies of Lajpat Rai are very instructive. It almost makes me feel sorry for, for uh, the uh, civilization that did not utilize the same vision that did not utilize enough the leaders like Lajpat Rai and we lost them so soon. Lajpat Rai says that Desh Bandhuji, I have studied Islam, I have over the last uh, several months carefully gone through the religious texts of Muslims. I, I, I am okay to trust Muslims. I am thinking that uh, um, Hakim Ajmal Sahab, another great Muslim Congress uh, uh, leader, I trust him, he is a very good Muslim, but can he go against the teachings of Islam? Can he go against Quran and Hadith, against the uh, ordinances, actions of the Rashidun Khalifa, the four Khalifs? He cannot. You can see the clarity of thought, but Lajpat Rai could not convince uh, Chitranjan Das. Sharat Chandra, the great novelist Sharat Chandra, who wrote um, who can be called grandfather of the Indian novel. Yeah. Sharat Chandra was a personal friend of Chitranjan Das as well. Sharat Chandra records in, uh, in his diaries etcetera, others have also mentioned anecdotes that uh, in the evening walks he would often go to the house of um, uh, Chitranjan Das and they would have talks and they would record in, in he would record in diary etcetera. Often this topic would come up about Hindu Muslim relations, Muslim motivations etcetera and um, he failed to convince Chitranjan Das of uh, the futility of this Khilafat etcetera type of policies. Chitranjan Das was a barrister as, as we all know. What many people may not know is he was the barrister who got Rishi Arvindo freed from the Aleppo bombing case. Of course, he had to be exiled, so he went to Pondicherry etcetera, but um, uh, Chitranjan Das one of these days went to Pondicherry to live in the ashrama, Arvindo ashrama and there again their talks are recorded. He lived there for several days and their talks are recorded and then uh, conversation of um, Rishi Arvindo and uh, mother are also recorded on the topic and Arvindo says I failed to convince him about the futility of all this. It is almost like uh, they have made it um, a, um, a priori that um, unless the Muslim approval is taken on the national movement, unless the Muslim participation is secured in the national movement, national movement should not happen. It is so surprising. In fact, if we go back to the birth of Congress party, Indian National Congress by A. O. Hume. Initial papers back in 
चित्रंजन दास महात्मा गांधी दे ऑलमोस्ट मेड इट नेसेसरी दैट लीव एवरीथिंग असाइड ऑल दैट मोमेंटम विच आई वाज मेंशनिंग हिंदू नेशनलिज्म और नेशनलिज्म इटसेल्फ ऑफ कोर्स इंडियन नेशनलिज्म इज हिंदू नेशनलिज्म एज अरबिंदू सेज दैट देयर इज नो अदर नेशनलिज्म इंडियन नेशनलिज्म इज हिंदू नेशनलिज्म ऋषि अरबिंदू सेड सो द मोमेंटम व्हिच वाज क्रिएटेड व्हिच वाज एट पीक आफ्टर द 1911 defeat of um, communal partition of bengal that whole thing was halted lost momentum given up for what for this um, so called uh, communal harmony bhaichara brotherhood etc and khilafat was the first um, most visible big size big scale uh, program that Uh, this this thought process kind of implemented so in any case uh, congress leaders like gandhi ji and uh, chitranjan das they continued in this um, in this uh, philosophy that first priority should be the so called bhaichara winning approval and cooperation of uh, indian muslims etc there were dissenting voices we should not forget i mentioned lajpat rai uh, there was very strong voice of uh, malvi ji as well pandit malvi had totally opposed khilafat etc and he said that if if khilafat is going to be congress program uh, it will be part of the non cooperation in the banaras hindu university i am not going to shut down a single class i will not allow a single lecture to be cancelled khilafat is not an indian program i will not support any congress any hindu energy to be wasted in this khilafat so lajpat rai there were other dissenting voices don't forget there were other many dissenting voices within congress party which were silenced okay, patel uh, it is recorded that patel would poo poo and uh, uh, laugh at uh, this whole khilafat concept but anyways uh, it happened so what did this khilafat practically lead to i already alluded to slowing down and eventually kind of letting it die that revival movement of hindus which were which which was um, in full speed starting with 1870s 1880s uh, and definitely reaching peak by 1910 1915 uh, that amazing energy of indian nationalism was allowed to slow down and then die down that was first thing second thing which the khilafat movement so called did especially congress taking that as part of its own program was giving a platform ready made platform organizationally 
to the most fanatical sections of the Muslim community, especially the Maulanas, who are very soon, very soon in the next decade or two, to emerge as great leaders of Muslim League. And very soon, the youth brigades and youth uh, Khilafat uh, uh, organizations, which were formed in every city and every state, these youth committees were the rioters factory. They created these, <laughs> these uh, organizational units in Calcutta, in Lucknow, in Kanpur, in Delhi, in Kerala, in Hyderabad, wherever. These so-called Congress youth, they, they very soon, they were the ones who led the direct action um, of um, Jinnah, very soon. That was the second thing that happened. So, to mention a few things, few, few names in context of Bengal, for example, um, what would happen? The Ali brothers and Gandhi, they would tour together, city to city. They would tour and Congress volunteers, they would go home to home, both Hindus and Muslims, and say, please join Khilafat committee. These local Khilafat committees, many times their president, secretaries, etcetera would be Hindus, wasting their time and energy in re-establishing Khilafat, Islamic rule in India, not even bothering, not even bothering to read explicitly written stuff about what will be the place of Hindus in that Khilafat. It is explicitly mentioned what will be the place of non-Muslims in Khilafat, in, in Islamic state. And Hindu spending time, energy, money uh, uh, in, in Khilafat committees. So, they would go home to home and in that recruitment, come join Khilafat committees, join this movement. Uh, just to mention a few names, Abdullah Halel Baki of Dinajpur, Muniru Zaman Islamabadi of Chitgaon, Maulana Akram Khan of 24 Parganas, Shamsuddin Ahmad Kustia, Ashrafuddin Ahmad Chaudhary Tipra. All of these names I am giving you, they became Congress leaders. They became Congress district presidents or uh, functionaries like that, in addition to Khilafat uh, committee secretaries and all. They gained popularity, they gained um, organizational network they gained um, um, other resources required and within less than 10 years, they all became, they showed their true colors. Even Suhravardi, for example, Suhravardi, the uh, prime minister, it was called not chief minister, prime minister of Bengal at one time, Suhravardi, uh, he was ally of uh, Chitranjandas and Subhash Chandra Bose. They fought elections together and they considered in, in the, if you read the speeches of Chitranjan Das and Subhas Bose also, they use such flowery language for Suhravardi. And Suhravardi, in fact, he was a lawyer, he fought cases, personally he fought cases of the Muslim rioters, Gundas who had killed hundreds of Hindus in the slum areas uh, during the um, Calcutta rioting. Suhravardi personally contested the, um, got them out of jails. Suhravardi uh, presided over 
the direct action day, the great Calcutta killings. And he was Bengal um, Khilafat um, uh, movement leader. So, you created leadership like that. You gave your platform, Congress party gave its platform for these kind of leaders to become leaders, to become, um, to operate their agenda. So, that is the other thing. Now, I would like to end with one very important speech of Sharat Chandra Chattopadhyaya, as I said, grandfather of Indian novel. Hmm? So, in 1926, soon after this Khilafat craziness was dumped and dead, he, it, was, it must have been a historical event that he was invited to give a speech in a Congress session, in Congress party's session in Haripura. So, he delivered uh, a historic speech addressing this issue that we are talking about today. I would like to read just a couple of paragraphs from it, sele selections from that speech. Why? Not because of what he said at that time about the events of that time, because what he said at that time is as relevant today for the policy makers of today. The policy makers of at that time, they did not listen to Sharat Chandra, they definitely did not listen to him. I can only hope that we listen to Sharat Chandra today and our policy makers take some heed to what he said. I read from part of his uh, speech. So, it was some years ago that uh, Mahatma Gandhi launched his non-violent, non-cooperation movement. Now, many leaders loudly proclaimed that Hindu-Muslim unity had to be achieved whatever the cost. They wanted it not only because it was good in itself, but because without it to dream of Swaraj and independence they thought was foolishness. They would not even think about Swaraj and independence without Muslim support. They cannot think that you can independently do something. Hindus lost everything in an attempt to find the magic grail of togetherness, brotherhood. Countless time and energy was wasted in this pursuit. It resulted in the Mahatma Ji's Khilafat movement and in Deshbandhu Ji's pact, whose hollowness is unsurpassed in Indian politics. Khilafat movement from the Hindu side was not only pointless, he says, it was false, it was fake. Battles fought for a false cause can never be won. And the lie of Khilafat, fakeness of Khilafat tied around the neck of Hindus like a unbearably heavy stone dragged our national movement to its destruction. You have destroyed it, he said. He is talking to the Congress leaders. But we want Khilafat. What sort of talk was yours? Now, I am reading only selections. So, remember um, there may at some places you may find uh, jumping the topics. We want Khilafat. What sort of talk is this? A country with which India had no connection. We did not even know what the people of uh, Turkey look like, were like or ate. A country that was ruled by our enemies in the past, who colonized us in the past. And once that Turkey was defeated in the war and Sultan was sent back, the colonized Indian Muslim community childishly insists on the return of that Turkey. 
it is a bribe he is telling the congress leaders by adopting that I, we will do khilafat you therefore, cooperate with us in the independence movement we will support you in getting the khilafat you get the um, khilafat we get the independence movement he says it is a bribe <laughs> we want Swaraj and you want khilafat. So, come let us unite we will offer our heads to be broken for khilafat and you raise the slogan of Swaraj. Can one ever bribe entice or delude people into joining a freedom struggle and indeed if you can will you ever win I do not think it is ever possible. The one who labored hardest for this was Mahatma ji himself. Once his dearly beloved friend Mr. Muhammad Ali, one of the Ali brothers, he was one he was who was very disturbed about the health of Gandhiji. So, shedding the tears he said, oh what a good man is this Mahatma ji, I want to do something really helpful for him. So, let us first go to Mecca then make an oblation to the peer, then read the kalma and make him renounce the infidel kafir religion that is what will do good to this Mahatma ji. On hearing this the disillusioned Mahatma ji cried let the earth swallow me. The truth is that if Muslims ever say that they want to unite with the Hindus there can be no greater hawks the Muslims came to India to plunder and their mentality remains. It is useless. So, here is the most important thing and you should be able to connect this with some of the recent talks thought processes going on. He says it is useless for us to try to shame Muslims by saying that seven generations ago they were Hindus why do you say that? Why do you say therefore, they are related to us by blood? It is irrelevant that their ancestors were Hindus does not matter. He says to my mind there is nothing more dishonorable than begging for pity that you were my relative at some time and groveling for unity do not do not fall for this pitiful stand. Anyways, this is uh, Sharat Chandra about Khilafat movement in the paper he presented, um, a speech he presented in a congress session and I consider uh, this to be still relevant for us today. Um, I will um, perhaps we can conclude the time would not uh, allow us to uh, go any further, but uh, I hope uh, we touched upon most of the points that I had in my mind. Uh, once again the agenda was to fill in the blanks there is a lot which has been spoken in last few months few weeks about uh, Mopla, Khilafat etcetera. There were a few things which uh, had to be still said I hope uh, I was able to say that thank you. It is clear that uh, for but then it is also very interesting to know that though they say they are not really interested in territory, to see what is happening in the Middle East. Every Muslim country is fighting with every other Muslim country, or co there are sects and things. 
Now, how are these two, what you call, planes getting adjusted? That is loyalty to Islam first and no territorial ambitions. Vishavi fighting for territory in the Middle East and outside. So, uh, I think there are two parts uh, to that question, sir. One is, what explains, first of all, so much of infighting, etc., uh, within the uh, Middle East? Uh, and second part of that, perhaps, is how does that that uh, kind of uh, intra-Muslim strife um, reconcile with the so-called first priority to Islam? I think first thing we need to understand is that as far as a Muslim mind is concerned, the definition of Islam for him is somewhat very straight-jacketed and tight. And somebody that falls outside of that definition, by and large, is a kafir, even if the other party claims to be a Muslim. For example, within the Khilafat movement, you may be surprised to know that Ahmadiyya community took a major part. Ahmadiyya community, so there is a book called, um, I forget the name, but um, it, its English translation is called Blessings of Khilafat. And the Ahmadiyya, the, then the Ahmadiyya leader, he um, declared himself to be the Khalifa. So, he used the concept of Khilafat but not this Khilafat movement, he himself being the Khalifa. Now, that whole uh, Ahmadiyya <laughs> sect who were as fundamentalist as um, your other um, Deobandi type of uh, Sunni Muslims, as fundamentalist to Islam, they are considered non-Muslims by officially by Pakistan. In fact, some of the murders of the Arya Samaji leaders in Punjab back in late 1800s, Pandit Lekhram, etc., were done by the Ahmadiyyas. Arya Samajis in Lahore, etc., in Punjab, even in UP, there were other such things which happened. So, even in the creation of Pakistan, by the way, creation of Pakistan, I should mention as well, was continuation of Khilafat movement. The ideology of Pakistan was, um, as expressed uh, beautifully by um, uh, recent author, it was another Medina, new Medina. Medina is which uh, kind of uh, started the uh, political movement of Islam uh, under the Prophet Muhammad himself. Uh, Medina became the um, sheet anchor for the spread of Islam. Uh, he did hijrat from Makkah to Medina and that event really created everything. Creation of Pakistan was that the image in the mind, including of Jinnah, including Iqbal, including all the uh, ideological forefathers of Pakistan was Khilafat. They were establishing a Khilafat, not just for Indian Muslims, for the world. They were creating a launch pad of renewed Khilafat. And I did not go into some other uh, legacy of Khilafat, but after this Khilafat movement um, fell flat uh, on its head and I am sorry, I am not answering your question, I got in so many other things. But 
uh, I still want to mention that legacy of Khilafat um, was democratization of Khilafat. So, Khilafat is no more uh, a Sultan, it can be democracy and still a Khilafat. Pakistan, even, even um, you know, theo democracy um, uh, type of um, arrangement. So, Khilafat continues and Pakistan creation was a continuation of Khilafat movement. The state of Pakistan, um, at least in theory, was a new Medina from where the uh, revival of Islam for the world, not just for subcontinent, for the world would take place. Now, coming back, so uh, one part of the answer is that as far as Muslims are concerned, their particular sect is the true Islam. Outside of that sect, they are Gumrah. If not Kafir, they are at least Gumrah. And it is um, in, a, in a Muslim, not ordinary Muslim, but Muslim uh, scholars or Maulana's mind, it is very important to bring uh, these people to the right path, these Gumrah people. And that can be done by force also. So, one um, zeal of um, uh, implementing your version of Islam over others is one thing. The other is natural politics. So, um, um, as, as uh, again in context of Khilafat, Indian leaders, uh, uh, they went to meet Kamal Pasha in Turkey. So, um, Kamal Pasha, he abolished Khilafat in 1924. These people before he did that, they, they came to know that they are about to do that. They went to Turkey to meet with him and plead with him to not do that. So, he said, uh, what is it to you? They said, okay, you abolish this dynasty, Ottoman, you establish a modern uh, Khilafat, you become the Khalifa. We are ready to accept you as Khalifa, you become the Khalifa. So, he laughed and he said, okay, um, tell me one thing. If I become the Khalifa, let us say I become the Khalifa, or all the Muslim rulers in the world going to consider me their head? Are they going to uh, do what is called bayat? They have a bayat which is declaration of uh, allegiance to me. Then there was silence. They, of course, they will not. Why? Because um, at a political level, Khilafat as an institution was really over. Ottoman was um, simply just a ramshackle remnant of, of Khilafat. True Khilafat was finished long, long time back. Hmm? So, all of these Muslim states are independent, they fight with each other, um, the part of that is regular politics just like any other state. Hmm? But um, at the same time, when it comes to non-Muslims, they unite, do not forget that. They may have thousand differences amongst themselves, but when it comes to non-Muslim, they will unite. So, do not mistake that ever. But uh, one thing which uh, I should still mention is uh, on that um, trusting the, the Muslims thing. See, both in the World War I and then during the Indian National Army, Ajad Hind Fauj episode, you should carefully study the behavior of Muslim soldiers. 
the muslim soldiers in the british army during the world war 1 they revolted at several places against the british as soon as they heard that the turkey switch side so initially turkey was with britain and uh, then they switch side and they went against the britain and when they heard that um, turkey is now against the um, britain they revolted against their officers they killed several in singapore and other places in azad hind fauj netaji's um, event much later 2 3 decades later same thing happened there were revolts in azad hind fauj desertions and um, there are records available of um, investigation and one of the reasons recorded reasons one of the reasons was it was muslim soldiers who were revolting for the religious reasons there were various uh, other details but major reason for muslim soldiers to um, to to revolt against the ina leadership was um, this <coughs> and um, there are so many precedences of this kind of behavior uh, in in uh, history in vijayanagara talikota battle of talikota the soldiers who muslim soldiers uh, who were um the employees of vijayanagara king they switch sides they went to the other side as soon as the opportunity arose so their loyalty uh, for the territory for the government etc uh, local government especially if they are um, non muslims very fragile i mean nothing compared to their loyalty to islam which is not even comparable i just add one more point uh, muslims in kashmir also Even in Kashmir, in forty-seven, when the tribals came in, the Kashmir army had about sixty percent Muslims, and some battalions of uh, Muslims were completely Muslim battalions switched over to Pakistani side. This is a fact. Absolutely. In, in fact, uh, yeah, I thought you can explain. You can add that. Yeah, no, absolutely. You're right. You're right. Maharashtra narrative of Muslims. In fact, there are posters being put up in Pune and Mumbai that Shivaji Maharaj established mosques. This is a recent event. The whole narrative around that is that he had some six generals, including his navy commander or something, who was a Muslim. Twelve commanders or something like that. Very, very common, popular narrative that is spread by Muslims in Maharashtra. Uh, because somehow shivaji uh, and the hindu muslim unity of maharashtrians i mean muslims of maharashtra see that you have to show allegiance to shivaji maharaj and this is a sort of a hook into showing that demonstrating that allegiance that we were also part of shivaji maharaj's army and his navy commander do you have a comment on that yeah i think um... Uh, my reading is slightly different my reading is that muslims on average are far more aware of your mentality than you are of theirs they know that uh, you are uh, very easily befooled by such narratives you would be it's pleasant narrative right shivaji hindu muslim bhai chara it's a nice 
to hear conversation you will take to it you hindus would take to it like duck to the water they know it how much would they themselves take to it not at all they are absolutely clear aurangzeb is a saint afzal khan um, still uh, there are chadars etc <laughs> sent on the um, afzal khan shaheed by the maharashtra muslims the uh, the narrative is only for consumption of the hindus not for their own internal consumption and it's not new they have been doing it for quite long time so a couple of examples so this inscription in veeraval veeraval in gujarat of uh, 1260s there is a dilapidated um, not dilapidated old mosque which was constructed by an arab trader in the territory of a hindu king there are two inscriptions there were two inscriptions one in sanskrit one in arabic hmm in the sanskrit all nice stuff is mentioned allah is described in uh, terms which the hindus can relate to praise of the king hindu king who allowed the land to be used for mosque construction is mentioned all other nice stuff in arabic same place second inscription same date in arabic they are praying to allah to demolish the budkhana of somnath veeraval is somnath basically that city is called veeraval saying destroy this uh, idols worship and allah grant this city to the domain of islam and victorious be the uh, muslim king so this fooling of Hindu, uh, hindus they ignorant they would not study the arabic muslim studied sanskrit muslims albiruni etc i don't know how much they studied but they studied sanskrit he wrote he translated works like patanjali's uh, yoga sutra he translated so many other works there were other muslims also who studied sanskrit you saw no value in studying the other party so you are illiterate the time of hindu revival i mentioned hindus had properly studied islam there were enough hindus who were fully fully aware of islamic theology there were some who were qaris who can who had quran by heart who can debate with mullahs now you don't even know how to read urdu you we in delhi i am asking delhi is the city of urdu how many hindus today even can read nastaliki script no they can't so we have become so full of ourselves we don't see um, beyond ourselves not they they figure it out so this consumption of this narrative is for hindu consumption they themselves are not be fooled by it lately i watched a video by i think a pasmanda muslim it was all over twitter actually so going by that video i understand that there is one set of muslim beliefs among the pasmanda community which is the reserved 
एंड अनदर फॉर द अशरफ राना अयूब्स एंड यू नो अरफा का सो वॉट इन योर ओपिनियन आई मीन डू द पसमानदाज हैव द सेम थाट एज द अशरफ और वी आर लेड टू बिलीव दैट द बिलीव्स ऑफ अशरफ्स आर एक्सेप्टेड आई मीन दे आर दू नो वॉट आई एम ट्राइंग टू से आई मीन हैव द ओपिनियंस ऑफ पसमानदाज बीन ओवर रन बाई द ओपिनियंस ऑफ अशरफ्स सो दैट वी कंसिडर मुस्लिम्स एज अ यू नो एक पूरा एक टोटल एक यूनिफॉर्म कमोडिटी और डू दे हैव डिफरेंट ओपिनियंस सो आई जस्ट एड टू दैट सेम क्वेश्चन वेरी गुड क्वेश्चन सो वन ऑफ द अपकमिंग लीडर्स ऑफ दिस मूवमेंट इज अब हमने घर बना लिया है अब इस्लाम की हम व्याख्या अपने तरह से यहाँ करेंगे हमारे सारे रीति रिवाज सब हिंदू हैं हम केवल मरते समय कब्र में दफनाया जाता है और निकाह होता है और ये सब बाकी सब हम बेसिकली इसी सभ्यता के हैं हम इसी सिविलाइजेशन के हैं हमारी प्रॉब्लम है हमारी आवाज़ नहीं आने देते और ये सब अशराफों ने और इन सब ने देख लिया पसमानदाओं की आवाज़ ही नहीं है दैट्स द सी आई आई बी ऑनेस्ट आई हैव नॉट फर्स्ट हैंड स्टडीड दीज थॉट प्रोसेस ऑफ और लिटरेचर ऑफ दीज सो कॉल्ड पसमानदा लीडर्स फ्रॉम क्लोज क्वार्टर्स आई हैव नॉट नाउ देर इज ए प्रोसेस विद इन इस्लाम इनबिल्ड प्रोसेस इन इस्लाम कॉल्ड तबलीग एंड इट्स ए big conversation it 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 will take me some time to explain it is one cog in the wheel of islamization of society so one step is somebody walks into islam by force or by allurement or by whatever means puts a foot inside the house of islam but he is only namesake muslim he is not properly muslim hmm so around the the times of the events you know that that we were talking about 1920s 30s there was largely the indian muslims were like that this population of proper muslims who came from arabia or central asia or iran was very small the local converts be in punjab or bengal they were practically hindus they must have changed a little bit of appearance but practically hindus just like you are you mentioned uh, these people are but then what happened there is a inbuilt process as i said so there is a process called dawa which is bringing the non muslims into islam once they are here maybe not in the same generation maybe in the second generation maybe in third there is a process called tabligh tabligh is making them proper muslims now it is a process tabligh is a process after dawa making the muslims there is another parallel process of sufis i will not get into detail but tabligh is an ongoing process so these people may think that okay we no 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 there is a process they will have to slowly change to the proper islam islam will there is an inbuilt check and balances so you consider islam as a uniform body it's not uniform body but i'm saying um, within islam 
if somebody says that I will retain my way of life which that's conflicts, not possible. So that's what I'm saying. Right? You cannot reform Islam. Ah, so Many people have come and gone. Powerful dictators like Akbar failed. Who are you? No, not possible. You either take Gharvapsi, come back to Sanatana Parampara. So, you either make a proper Gharvapsi or you, you anyway will become Muslim. If you don't do anything, you will anyway become proper Muslim. Sometimes it takes several generations. So, the founder of Tablighi Jamaat, hmm, uh, Ilyas, Maulana Ilyas, this was the specific uh, problem statement that he was trying to fix here in neighborhood of uh, Delhi and Haryana, Mewat, in Alwar, this area, Alwar district, not very far from here. He, Mayos had a very large community. They were for several uh, decades, for several perhaps couple of centuries, they had been converted to Islam. But they um, were still following their Gotra system. They were still, many of them, vegetarians. They had their Kuladevata, Kuladevi, all of that intact. So, he created a little more formal structure of bringing them to proper Islam. The ex-Muslims, there is an entire movement of ex-Muslims growing. Any comments on that? Are they <coughs> They are becoming atheists, quite a few are sort of returning to Sanatan Parampara. Um, but mostly they are atheists, very scientific if you like. But uh, basically decided that Islam is not for them, this is a hate religion. It's a growing global community, North America, India is hidden because they are threatened too much. But Sri Lanka, uh, even in uh, Europe, very, very strong communities. Any comment on that? Yeah, it definitely is growing and it will grow even more, I believe. The Oman, is, Oman is not that Wahhabi. These are proper Wahhabis. Majority, not Wahhabi, but majority Sunni, uh, Hanafi interpretation. No, in their in, uh, Hanafi interpretation, uh, Hindus or minorities, as long as they live within the Sharia, they are protected. Their temples are allowed. Temples you can have. You will be second class citizen. In Khilafat, there is no Maulana Ajad or any Muslim leader. No Muslim leader will say that when Khilafat comes, Hindus will also have a voting right. So, I mentioned already that Khilafat is a democratic Khilafat now. Pakistan, for example. Hmm? Now, Pakistan has Hindus have voting rights, but um, they are opposing that. So, the Khilafat proper, Hindus um, or non-Muslims can only be um, second class citizens. At best, what is called Dhimmi, no voting rights. Uh, you can preach your religion to your children, but nobody else. And if your child converts, you have no right to keep him or force him to follow your tradition, things like those.